Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our topic today is love. You look a little surprised. <laughs> Why? I know Valentine's Day is coming up. That's not what I prepared to discuss today, but I'm willing to roll with it. Actually, our topic today is vouchers, which if you think of it... Is, is a love story. Well, an unrequited an love unrequited story. An unrequited love story. That the, the desire for vouchers goes way, way back. For some people. And I thought, I happen to know that your Twitter handle is Edu Historian. That's true. That's actually, it's on my birth certificate. I just go by Jack. <laughs> I thought, wouldn't it be great if Jack went back in time and gave us a really zippy rundown of where this whole voucher thing comes from so that we can understand how it is that it's come back and and try to make sense of, of what's going on now. Are and you up to that challenge? Well, when we have a larger budget, then we will introduce uh, the sound effect of me getting into my time machine and going back and then reporting live from the scene in uh, whatever year it happens. So should we go all the way back to uh, to the 1800s, which is a time period when when some people like to uh, like to begin with the story of vouchers? Well, let me let me ask you this: how how long do you think this is going to take? That would take a long time because I would also have to explain how when people locate the origin of vouchers in the 1800s, that they're really just kind of playing a trick on everybody else, and that we should really fast forward to the 20th century if we're going to tell the story of vouchers. I think that's a great idea. Why don't you quickly? name drop the the gentleman who is often credited with the sort of first Milton. Mr. Milton Dr. Yes, Milton Dr. Dr. Milton uh-huh. start there uh, his idea um, found intellectual purchase but no practical uh, implementation uh, until we fast forward to uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s, and we begin to see, you said this was a, a love story, an unrequited love story, but there's actually a, a requited love story, a strange bedfellowship between uh, free market uh, thinkers, uh, a la Milton Friedman and his followers, and equity advocates, because the the first voucher programs we saw were in places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they were made available to low-income families. Uh, and then in terms of the strange bedfellowship, we, we can add one more party to this. It's a, it's a threesome. Are we allowed to say threesome on the podcast? We are. Okay. It's PG-13. Okay. Well, so the third bedfellow would be uh, the, the religiously oriented uh, and so people who would want to use public school funds, uh, or they would not use that language, they would just say tax dollars uh, to pursue a religious education. Uh, so that's, I'm already really intrigued, and I will admit that in preparation for this, I did go back and and do some reading about history because I the thought of only you being the knowledgeable one just... Filled me with with despair, and oh, so oh, ra- it looks like rage yeah, in your eyes. But yeah. there's a podcast, so, not so a movie. I thought, well, I better I better have some things at the ready, or it's just going to be Jack. So we fast forward to today, and one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about reading about the evolution of the choice movement was that vouchers, when they were initially 
when they were first proposed, really dropped with a thud. They were a non-starter. They were the they were a big uh, pet project of the Reagan administration, and then they realized they had a real loser on their hands. And why? Why were they a loser? Well, it's a really good question. Uh, so, you know, one of the one of the key reasons that vouchers lost as a national proposal, but won in some place like Milwaukee, and we also see voucher programs in places like Washington D.C., is that. Everybody who's got a school-age kid would receive a voucher for the per-pupil expenditure in their town. Uh, So they would take out their local tax dollars and their state tax dollars and whatever federal tax dollars might be in that mix, which means that people who already send their kids to private schools, which is approximately 9% uh, of the American public, that those people would essentially withdraw the money that had been allocated to their local public school and then reallocate it to the private school where their kids are already enrolled. So it'd be a massive tax break for these people. So that was the first reason why it was a big non-starter because it, it would amount to a, a 9% cut in, ed- in funding for public education. The polling has been remarkably consistent through the years that on the one hand, people will say that they, um, you know, they're pro-school choice. They may even express some positive feelings about vouchers, but they're also interested in actually expanding the government role in schools, right? Like they they really like the idea of government-funded pre-K. Yeah, and it's also interesting because once you begin to ask people follow-up questions after you ask them uh, about whether or not they favor the ability to choose schools and you ask questions like, you know, do you believe that uh, schools should be funded uh, with taxpayer dollars if they are educating children uh, with an emphasis on religious education, um, you begin to lose a lot of the folks who are positive. Or if you say, what if we tell you that the performance of the schools uh, that that people will be sending their children to is often in the case of, uh, you know, private and uh, and um, religious schools is often equal to, not better than, uh, the performance of traditional public schools, uh, which is something that research has consistently found when you control for student background. Then you, again, you begin to lose some people who had been excited about this idea of being able to take public funds to private schools. Or if you say, you know, hey, what about the idea that there are only a finite number of schools out there uh, and that you know, if everybody wants to take their, their tuition vouchers to Andover, um, hey, I'd like to take my tuition voucher to Andover. Um, Andover is going to say, I'm sorry, we don't have any room for you. And also they're going to make a note of the fact that your voucher, if it's worth the per pupil expenditure average for the United States, you know, it's somewhere in the ten dollars to $15,000 range, uh, is going to be about $30,000 short of what tuition actually costs there. Uh, then there's the, you're going to lose additional folks, and we could go on and on about why you lose people well, from apparently this when you ask we could questions. go on and on about any number of things because I can't believe how much time we've already used up. It's it's, we, it's time to bring in the let's mystery guest. Bring in. We're going to pause here and bring in our guest. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. This is Have You Heard? The topic today is vouchers and or the Great American Unrequited Love Story. And I'm Jack Schneider, and I'm here with her. And we'll be right back. As, as you know from our great buildup, we have a special guest for, for this episode. From Florida. 
from Florida that, that narrows Florida. it down. Yeah. Travis, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I'm a recovering journalist, the editor of Redefine Ed Online, and um, I work on the policy team at Step Up for Students, which is uh, the organization that administers the nation's largest private school choice program, the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program, as well as uh, one of its newest private school choice programs, uh, the Garter Scholarship for Children with Special Needs. We we started out our conversation talking about the history of the voucher ideas, and I described it as an unrequited love story, that it, it goes way back, and yet it hasn't been an easy sell for the public. And I think you've really seen that in the last few weeks as we've been in this red hot debate about Betsy DeVos, that there's there's something about the the concept that people are not willing to embrace. What do you say to that? Well, I think, first of all, there is a real issue that in a number of states, there have been ballot initiatives proposing vouchers that didn't pass. And you can. Uh, Travis, I'm going to interrupt you right away uh, just because I'm really interested in in that. Can you can you just briefly tell us why you think those didn't pass? I mean, there's there's a number of reasons that that really would explain the individual proposals. In some cases, you had divides among the voucher advocates, where you had, uh, for example, a a, a sort of free market. advocates of a free market approach, and then you've had advocates of more of a, uh, a more heavily regulated, uh, equitably funded approach. Um, and, and in several cases, those two competing tribes among voucher supporters split, for example, in California, and that undermined the, uh, that undermined the, the proponent side. But I also think that um, I, the, one of the overlaps between what's defeated those ballot initiatives over history and what's um, really, uh, uh, what's really fueled a lot of the opposition to Betsy DeVos is this idea that vouchers are harmful to public schools and that they undermine public education. And I think that that really is uh, a potent argument that the opponents of vouchers have been able to put forward. And I disagree with it. I think that there are studies that undercut it, but the reality is that the the school choice movement hasn't always been good at explaining to parents who enroll their kids in public schools and who like their public schools uh, that this isn't going to harm you and that this is not going to harm your public schools. This could actually help public education as a whole. Uh, You know, the school choice movement hasn't been great about making that argument. In some cases, it's even shied away from making that argument. It's talked instead about failing schools and and, and really uh, demeaning public education. And that approach just doesn't seem to work because the vast majority of American children do attend public schools, and the, frankly, the vast majority of Americans are satisfied with the public school where they send their children. That, so it's interesting to hear you say that, Travis, because that you're actually echoing some of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, Although are, you use bedfellows, not tribes. I did, yes, that's true. It's almost like uh, it's, people are going to think we were funneling Travis information, uh, which we were not. He was in a sealed room. Um, like a quiz show. Uh, but Travis, I'm interested, could you make as briefly as possible in the podcast equivalent of bullet points what you think the the better argument is in favor of vouchers? Sure. So let's take a look at the Louisiana voucher program uh, as an example, because that is a program that um, has come under fire recently because there's been some studies saying it didn't really, uh, it hasn't 
produced major gains in test scores and has that seems like kind of an understatement (laughs) yeah it's actually had a negative effect on on (laughs) test scores in private school students but if you look at the impact on the system as a whole it has had a a positive impact on racial desegregation it has had a positive impact on uh, student achievement in the public schools it has had a uh, again small but still positive it has had a small but positive impact on the bottom line of the state budget for the state of Louisiana. It's saved uh, money for the school system. And it has, perhaps most importantly, a 90% parent satisfaction rate based on what we've, we've seen from the surveys that have been taken. And so what we really see is we see a program that is not hurting the public education system is on a at a very marginal but very uh, real as far as we're able to measure level helping the public education system, and that most importantly is improving parent satisfaction with the educational experiences that their children are having. It seems and like so, only one one element is missing. And what's that? Well, it, I mean, I to use a a non education descriptor, it seems like it was kind of a flaming bag of dog do. Like it, the results were abysmal. I'm amazed that you would start with that example. I don't think you can say the results were abysmal. I mean, people were shocked you, by those results. I think if you look at the fact that the results are improving over time and they're improving year over year, I mean, it seemed like there was debate about actually ending the program. Well, those the, that that was mostly coming from the usual suspects and from people who would oppose the existence of the program overall. If you look at if you look at what's going on in Louisiana. First of all, it's getting better year over year. But uh, second of all, and, and um, you know, John White, the superintendent of public instruction there, has been very supportive of the program, and he's been sort of committed to um, helping it get better, and that has been happening. But if you look at the systemic effects, it is producing a net benefit for children in public schools from what we've been able to see in the studies, and the parents are happy with it. And again, 90% Parent satisfaction is a rate that I, I mean, we don't see that with public schools, but I don't, I don't, I can't think of another government program that is that popular with the people who use it. Although, so that suggests that what needs to happen is we need to figure out ways to um, improve the results in that program, but that it's worth continuing. You know, I, I would just interject here, Travis, and say, you know, I, I'm not one to dismiss, uh, parental satisfaction. I think that matters a lot. And I think um, that the the voices of the people who are impacted by the educational system are, are too often muted or ignored. Um, but I would also say that there's a big literature in consumer psychology that shows that people are more satisfied with the things that they have ended up with through a choice process uh, even if they end up with the exact same thing that they would have been assigned, um, so we've you know there are, there are all sorts of experiments, laboratory experiments Skin in the game with this. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but you know, you, you give people a coffee cup uh, and they they immediately throw it away versus you know they got to choose the coffee cup over some other door prize, and then this becomes their favorite coffee cup. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering how much parental satisfaction actually tells us about the quality of this program versus what it tells us about some of the things we maybe need to learn system-wide in public education um, to get parents more connected to school and feeling a stronger sense of ownership, which certainly can happen without uh, 
vouchers. We're talking about vouchers with our guest, Travis Pillow. Things have already gotten um, a little bit heated, which is kind of exciting. Travis, I want to switch gears just a little bit because you raised a number of, uh, a number of big issues and we're going uh, to take a break in just a second. But I want to know, one of the big issues that's being debated right now is the role of accountability, right? That we've, uh, I, you gave me some stuff that you thought was important to read. And, and I was interested in how voucher advocates seem like they were citing the backlash against test-based accountability to argue for a system with less regulation. And I, I had mixed feelings about that because I've obviously been, uh, you know, a vocal uh, participant in the in the movement that's saying there's too much testing and that the the definition of schooling is being narrowed, but uh, you know I then don't see that as a justification for just moving towards an unregulated system. What say you, sir? Um, I would agree that we cannot have a completely unregulated system, but I would also say that um, a good way to think about this is that um, if you have if you have only one system of schools where everyone is assigned to send a school, you're going to have to have tighter tighter levels of accountability and regulation on that one system. If parents are able to decide where their child goes, then they're going to have a little bit more say in how their child is treated, whether the system is actually working to serve their child. And so it would make sense that you would have less regulation. But there are some real issues, even when you have a choice system. For example, it's important, I think, that parents have accurate, meaningful information on how well children are being served by different schools. Travis, uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to interrupt you, I, and I do so uh, feeling like I'm being rude, but I, that, I was just about to ask you a question about that, and so I got kind of excited when you brought that up. He did get excited. He was kind of bouncing up and down in his seat. That, it's true. And, and so uh, two questions about that. Uh, so first is we know from educational research that uh, there are a lot of parents who are going to be very hard to reach with information about school performance, uh, that not all parents are equal in terms of their access to information or in terms of their uh, training in being able to, to pour over reports on school performance. So that's, that's the first concern that I'd be interested in, uh, in hearing you talk about. And then, and then we've got to take a break. Um, but then the, the, the other piece that I'm interested in there is what is the information that we are going to give parents about schools? Because, of course, schools are not like cereal or like soda where you know if you like it from the first taste and then you can ditch it and, you know, have only been out a minimal investment. Um, you know, in terms of school quality, uh, it, you often don't know uh, how well a school is serving your child until your child has been in that school for a year or two years or four years. Uh, certainly, I'm a big believer uh, in the power of data. It's something I've spent the last several years working on. Um, but I'm wondering what information we currently have that we could give to parents, particularly knowing that there are a lot of parents uh, who it's going to be pretty hard to reach that information with. Yeah, so I think uh, there's a couple levels here. First of all, I think that there is a stereotype that parents who maybe are not uh, well-educated themselves or perhaps are low-income parents or, um, or, or who face other challenges in life are not necessarily seeking, uh, more likely to seek out better schools for their children or to seek out information about those schools. And I would say that that's somewhat belied by experience. Um, 
I mentioned earlier that my employer helps administer the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. So the typical parent served by that program is a single mother uh, earning about uh, less than $25,000 a year. So that is a low-income single mom, and these parents are, you know, on average, far lower income and far more disadvantaged than the average family that even qualifies. And what information so are they using? that that these parents are out there seeking other options. Now, the second question is, are they going to do their homework? Are they going to look into uh, information on school performance? And I think there we have encouraging results out of Washington, D.C., which is one of these forward-thinking cities that has created a unified uh, enrollment and information system where if you sign up for a public school, you sign up and uh, and through that enrollment system, you do get information on school performance. And what do you think of the quality of that, of that information, in Travis? Which has that, shown those parents really are consulting uh, that information and they are using it to inform decisions about where they send their kids. But, but can you so, comment about the quality of that information? Isn't the information largely going to be uh, test score reports and uh, and information that, that wouldn't really tell them a great deal about the kind of education their children uh, are going to be receiving at these schools? I mean, that's my concern, is that parents can access information uh, but that it takes a lot of unpacking of the information that's available to get to something that actually matters and not end up being a little bit misinformed by the information that's out there. Travis, hold, hold tight for just a minute. When, um, when we come back, we want to talk a little bit more about some of the research that's been coming out around the country about who is using, um, who is u- taking advantage of, of voucher programs in some of these other states besides Florida, and also get to the the bigger issue of what public means, because I know that's something that you and I spend a lot of time going back and forth on. Oh, you and I? Uh, well, you and I, meaning Travis and I, oh, you spend and a Travis. lot of time going back. We have a Travis and I are are. I would describe us as Twitter frenemies. Well, you know, Tra- uh, Travis and I, we were Twitter frenemies, and we decided to take our frenemy ship uh, to uh, my Ed Week blog back when I was blogging with Michelle Ree, and, and we had a very civil exchange. Because Travis is a very is a very civil, civil gentleman. So hold tight just for a second, Travis, and we will be right back. Sounds good. So how do you think it's going so far, Jack? I'm trying uh, not to interrupt him. You too seem much. a little bit agitated. Well, I I think Travis and I continue to disagree about some things, uh, and that we each have our tricks that we deploy uh, when we disagree with each other. Like, for instance, when uh, Travis was implying, for instance, that I am stereotyping. Uh, low-income families by assuming that they can't access, don't want to access. This felt like a fairly familiar back and forth. It's a familiar back and forth. Not necessarily, I'm not impugning Travis here, but you know, that's that's one of the tricks and I have my own tricks and uh, you know, it's a little frustrating when the other person uses their tricks and I'm not saying Travis is trying to be tricky. Has Travis said anything that, that really surprised you? I was surprised that he referenced uh, what's going on in Louisiana for a number of reasons, including the fact that Louisiana is is such a unique place, um, uh, you know, particularly when we're talking about New Orleans, uh, that I think even if the results there had been positive, um, that they wouldn't have really been generalizable beyond that. Um, 
And and then I th- I think I was surprised uh, that he was pointing to the kinds of information that parents have access to in places like Washington D.C. Uh, as evidence of um, something that would actually inform parents in the process of choosing a school. Uh, because I think actually what's going to happen is that you're going to get some parents who are a little bit savvy and who are going to find that information and they are going to have the bejesus scared out of them about some schools that are probably perfectly good. Um, and it's really going to exacerbate competition for a small number of schools that probably aren't that much better than uh, the schools that will have no competition for them, which of course will drive even more competition for a, f- a small number of seats. Um, I, you know, I I, th- I think Travis uh, is a little bit more skeptical of the kind of data we currently have about public schools. Um, so I was surprised to see him referencing that system. I I'm really enjoying this meta portion of the show that where we we just get to sort of uh-huh. talk amongst ourselves about how we think our guest is it, doing. It, it's a structure that could lead to very bad behavior. It, it it could. We need to monitor ourselves. Well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go high here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, one of the things. Wait, does that mean that I was going low? No, no, no. You weren't going low at okay. all. Just but going medium. I guess you know, for me, I feel like people who are really in the throes of these sort of experimental projects that involve the unwinding of a public institution have a special responsibility. To, to really be mindful of the implications of what they're doing, and especially at a time, you know, we're really waking up to realize just how fragile our democratic institutions are. And so I feel like if you're a school choice person, that's maybe something you should be thinking about a little bit now. So I'm going to push him on that just a bit. Yeah, that's 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 good. And I, I want to pick up that question about the data that people currently have access to. Poor Travis didn't get the answer because we put him on hold. Well, I know people are on the edge of their seats waiting to see where this is going to go. So let's get Travis back on the phone. Okay, I'm putting my headphones back in. And we are back. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. We are joined on our, our show today by Travis Pillow. Travis, are you there? I'm here. So you started out laying out the case for vouchers, and, and one, of the, one of the arguments you made was that while opponents are always claiming that these, these programs will weaken the public schools, and that's an argument that voucher critics have made since the, they were first, the idea was first floated, you you argued that this really isn't the case, and I wanted to I wanted to bring to your attention a moment from Betsy DeVos's confirmation hearing, uh, the vote last week, where Al Franken took strong issue with this claim, and he he cited some recent research from Indiana about who's using that voucher program and the fact that that the majority of parents who are taking advantage of it never had kids in the public schools. You cited research about your program in Florida, but that seems to be the exception. And I just wondered when you see this, when you see that money is going to people, it's going from taxpayer money is going to people who never had kids in the public schools. Doesn't that seem to bear out the claim that this will weaken public schools? Well, as far as I've seen, public schools in Indiana are doing quite well. And the the voucher uh, system on a per student basis is saving taxpayers money in Indiana, and that money is money that I certainly would hope the uh, legislature in Indiana would plow right back into their public education system. So I don't think that we can take from that alone that public education is being harmed. In fact, the opposite may very well be true. And in fact, um, you know, I would also just push back on the idea that 
we have to think of the public school system as a default option uh, for children where you only get a choice if that option is not working. I think that we should really have all options available to all families. Um, that we're, we're recording this at Somerville High School, and um, that's actually an intercom system in the background. And somebody's supposed to report for cap and gown right now, but, but I think I can, I can pick up uh, where uh, Travis was leaving off because I, I, I've got a more pointed version of Jennifer's question, and that's, well, maybe not pointed. It's a rounded version, but shorter. Um, and that's that uh, if, if everybody has access to a voucher worth the average per pupil expenditure, everybody meaning people with school-age children, um, then people with school-aged children who currently have their kids enrolled in a private school will get one of these vouchers, and uh, they will just direct that money to the private school and save themselves uh, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. That's so, what we're seeing in states like Maryland, Indiana, Wisconsin. And what that amounts to is just a massive tax break for parents who have their kids in private schools who by and large, and this is certainly not universal, but who by and large are higher income uh, uh, as, a, as a kind of rule. Uh, and so, you know, I think the question is, um, what do we say about a, a, an approach that would basically channel taxpayer money out of traditional public schools and not just into private schools because that money's already there, but into the pockets of parents who currently have their kids enrolled in private schools. Well, so uh, Jennifer brought up the example of Maryland, and and Maryland is an illustrative example because that is a tiny voucher program. As I understand it, $5 million. And so if some of that money is going to parents who are already attending private schools, that would really raise a concern, a concern that perhaps... Uh, low-income parents, for whatever reason, were not able to get information about that program or uh, to find out about that program. And so in a, in a, in a system like Maryland's, uh, where you have a very scarce amount of money, I think it's very important that the most disadvantaged families get put in the front of the line. And that's certainly the policy in, in, uh, in our program in Florida. It's the policy in some proposals that are being put forward in Arkansas and other places that you really need to put the most disadvantaged people first, and that's going to have a positive impact on the public system because that's going to disproportionately attract people who aren't already attending private schools. But to to get to your question, um, the way I think about that is uh, the way I think about, for example, the Affordable Care Act. You have people who earn 300% of the poverty level who qualify for subsidies to purchase health insurance uh, who in many cases, and probably most cases, unless they had a pre-existing condition, already had insurance when the law came online. But due to the reforms and the subsidies that are provided under the law now, they have more options and they have better options. And they're able to maybe get better insurance where earlier they were underinsured. Now they have better options at their disposal, better options that can fit their family budget. And so they might have been purchasing private insurance in the past, but now they're able to get a better plan and, and their family is, is better served. And I think that that should be the way we think about this. We prioritize the needs of the most disadvantaged, and then once they're all served, we try to give the best uh, possible options to all families. Travis, I'll observe here that you may be the only voucher advocate who is also an Obamacare advocate. Uh, and I, 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 could, I could follow up, but I, I'll, I'll just make that observation uh, and then smile. I've got a Rolodex full of others. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love that it's a Rolodex. Yeah, right, right. 
Um, the, the last question before we run out of time here, and it's a question that I asked before. Oh, well, I, that's a penultimate question because oh, I actually have the question? last question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then three more questions because mm-hmm. I actually have the last question. Uh, no, my last question is actually a question I already asked before, and then you didn't have the opportunity to weigh in, and that's about the kind of information that parents actually need in order to make good decisions about where they send their kids to school. You know, I think a lot of people um, are uncomfortable with the idea of public dollars flowing to private schools and particularly to the pocketbooks of parents who already have their children enrolled in private schools. But choice writ large is something that is quite popular with folks. And uh, there are a lot of people who are opposed to vouchers who uh, are in favor of choice, at least theoretically. Um, But whatever we're talking about in terms of a choice approach, uh, parents do need information about schools and they don't have that information right now and they certainly don't have equal access to that information, Um, which is not to say higher income folks have better access to information. There's some really interesting research um, that shows uh, that higher income parents often rely on anecdotal evidence that they just share among each other, uh, which does not necessarily align with reality. And I'm just wondering, uh, I'm giving you a magic wand right now, uh, and you get to wave that magic wand and produce data, however difficult they might actually be to acquire, produce data about schools uh, that we could put in the hands of parents in order to facilitate uh school choice in some way, whether it be intra-district choice uh, or the use of, uh, of charters or even vouchers. Um, when you wave that magic wand, what, what sorts of information suddenly become available? Can you tell this is kind of a thing for Jack? I like the magic wand. Well, and the data. And the data. The full pictured data. Data wands too. Yeah, so pass me a magic wand. I think two things I would definitely do. Number one, uh, we would have a Yelp for schools where we would have, uh, I mentioned earlier, parent satisfaction. I do believe that that's very important. And I also believe that it can be an indicator of deeper issues. If we look at how Yelp works in the restaurant industry, you know, now there are health departments in states that look at Yelp comments and Yelp ratings. Um, and, and also, you know, the star rating isn't enough. You need to look at the qualitative feedback from parents as well. I think that that can help supplement other indicators like test score data like graduation rates, to really give parents a fuller picture of how well schools are not only serving all children, but maybe serving children with specific circumstances. So if a parent with autism has a bad problem in a school, that's going to hopefully show up in their review, and other parents with autism will recognize that and make decisions based on that information. Uh, So that's one is I think a system of user reviews, if you will, uh, could be really valuable. Second, um, I think that parents need... Uh, real-time information on how well their children are being served. In other words, um, there should be sort of checkpoints throughout the year where you're not waiting until some summative test result comes out over the summer. Uh, you should know from standardized in, tests in, in issued much every day. closer to real-time whether your child's learning and making progress. Okay. All right. I can tell Jack. Jack's twitching. He wants to ask a follow-up, but no, I'm, but I'm, I'm not. not I'm to. not letting him. I'm not going Travis, to. you mentioned when you first started talking about vouchers. You also did kind of a quick little history, and you talked about the the various tribes when you were telling us about why why voucher amendments might have been voted down in different states. And and I I did some reading to prepare for this, and I was fascinated by the the history of various choice experiments that have been attempted and I came away convinced that it is possible to to 
conduct choice related experiments in way that ways that are very concerned with things like income redistribution and equity and what so concerns me about our present moment is that the progressive elements are all gone and the people who are really pushing this stuff now don't seem to really give a crap about about any of that. It's like the free market uh, bedfellows have pushed the equity bedfellows out of the bed. They really, they're not in the bed. It's right. It's free market and, and it's religious. religious. They're and, still in the bed. And I wonder, I, threesome I hear, I hear some of, I hear a concern about that and what you say, Travis, and I wonder how you look at that world. If you, if it concerns you that the people who are driving the the choice bus really are that the loudest voices are overwhelmingly these free market hands off people i think that that that, that that's definitely something that i'm concerned about but i would also add that the the textures of that debate within the school choice movement or within the landscape of people who support vouchers are a little different than than a lot of people might suspect. Just uh, for example, there's certainly a free market tribe in the voucher movement that believes that, you know, say, Betsy DeVos and her family should be able to receive a voucher to go to a private school. Um, but then you also have a tribe that believes, as I've said before, that it's very important to prioritize uh, the low-income families, especially when you have a scarce amount of dollars available to pay for vouchers and things like that. And I would argue that if you look at the paper trail of what she has supported around the country uh, over the past two decades, uh, Betsy DeVos is actually much closer to that latter group. Although doesn't than, that, Travis, uh, speak to, to something about the the political infeasibility of doing what she otherwise might prefer, which would be pursue a, a more free, free market-oriented approach that does not take things like income into consideration. I mean, that the, the Reagan administration back in the 80s wanted to push a voucher scheme and uh, realized that it was politically completely infeasible and ended up throwing their weight behind charters instead. Uh, and that the, the the early experiments with vouchers in places like Milwaukee did have income requirements. Uh, don't you think that that reflects more of Betsy DeVos's uh, willingness to recognize reality than uh, any statement about her, uh, you know, real beliefs about the the ideal voucher system? It's certainly true that I have not personally interviewed her on this question, <laughs> but I think if well, you get again, to work, if Travis. If you look at the, if you look at, for example, uh, some of the some of the wrangling that's gone on over tax credit scholarships in Georgia, if you look at where she came down siding with uh, with Mayo, uh, Howard Fuller, and uh, and other folks on on how Louisiana's voucher program was structured, she's actually fought some battles against the more uh, you know Heritage Foundation, uh, Cato Institute wing of the school choice movement who have a more libertarian approach. Um, so, I mean, she has actually put some political capital behind, uh, behind the positions that I'm describing. So, um, and, but I, I do worry though, that we have this polarization in our politics, uh, that is driving more of those equity focused people out of the school choice tent. And, uh, and I think that we need to, we, it is important for, for my side, so to speak, to hold that, coalition together because the equity advocates are ultimately going to, uh, I think, make these programs work 
better if their voices are, are heated. Or help them work at all if they're going to work at all. Travis, I want to thank you for joining us, letting us experiment on you. This is the first real episode. Episode that, one, yes, a collector's item. Yes, uh, we. Uh, these are going to be coming out roughly every two weeks. Each time we'll take on some hot button issue. We'll, we'll wrangle somebody we know to come and talk about it with us. A and hot shot. A hot shot, a hot such as yourself. A hot shot. So thank you. Thank you, Travis. Yes, thank you, Travis. thanks to everyone for listening. I want to give a quick shout out to our fantastic producer, Francisco. If you happen to be in the market for a podcast producer yourself, definitely check this guy out. You can find him at rafart, R-A-F-A-R-T, musictech.com. And until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And we are coming to you from the Somerville Public Schools. And this first episode, who knows where we'll be next time. Thanks for listening to Have You Heard.